0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Few things offer a cultural permission slip to hate our enemies like politics. As disciples of Jesus, who called people of radically opposed political ideologies to come and follow him, and who taught nonviolence and enemy love, how do we love and bless our enemies in a world that knows only how to dehumanize, demonize, shun, and silence them. Human beings are inclined to hate their enemies. But few people actually call it that. Hate is a dirty word. Hate is a technical term. There's hate speech and official hate groups. Hate, we think, is neo-Nazis and the Klan. And it is this hatred so solidified and so organized that it rallies more hate around itself with symbols and a unique vocabulary. These are the extremes. But focusing on the extremes tends to overlook the normalcy of hate. It's a bit like saying, man, we should talk about how people, people often hurt one another, and then directing the entire conversation toward Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer or John Wayne Gacy or Hitler extreme, depraved, shamelessly unmasked hatred exists as I live and breathe. But it doesn't resonate with the ordinary human experience. The hatred we know is more casual, more ordinary. It's not a right-wing thing or a left-wing thing. It's a human condition thing. And there are all sorts of reasons that we hate, immaturity or selfishness or the way that we're raised, the stories that we believe, our culture, trauma, pain, fear. But few things offer a better occasion to hate one another than politics. Politics grant us the same base dehumanizing convenience of racism, or xenophobia, or sexism, in which human beings made in God's image are reduced to their skin color, or their nationality, or their gender, or the way that they vote, and they are hated for it. As if this most defines the human being. In my 37 years, never has this inherent human awfulness been more brazen and unapologetic than the last few years of the American political theater. Part of us, the broken, twisted part of us that the New Testament calls the flesh, finds the complicatedness of human beings tiring. What makes a broken person the way they are is complex and unsatisfying. And we're Americans. Show us bumper stickers that we may know our friends from our enemies. In August, a popular lifestyle blogger claimed via social media to have reached her breaking point in dealing with the other side of the aisle. It makes me sick to my stomach, she wrote. That you, a Trump supporter, ever read or watch or listen to anything I've created. This is true even if I know you in real life. I have a deep desire to withhold my community and my creations from you. Instagram has data that could tell me exactly which of you support Trump. I wish they could give me that data. I would block every single one of you. But she wanted more than a social media blacklist. She went on to say, I want to shun you from my community. If gatherings were safely happening, I want you to be shunned from all events hosted by decent people. No wedding invitations, no conference tickets, no backyard barbecues. I want decent event hosts to send you a card explaining you are not invited because you're a Trump supporter. I wish Ikea and Target wouldn't let you buy their products. I wish your internet provider, who knows for sure you vote for Trump, would cut you off as a customer. I want to see you shunned. By every person and organization that doesn't support Trump. No more access to their books, movies, products, music, events, artists, and influencers. And then she concluded, You can't support Trump and also be a decent human being. You can't support Trump and earn my respect. Want to be a decent person? Don't want want to worry about being shunned? You're in luck. The solution is easy and free. Stop being a Trump supporter. Don't vote for Trump. The Post's were retweeted more than 15,000 times, crowding themselves behind the mask of this faux digital courage. Social media users swarmed to amplify this sentiment. Oh, that someone had lent words to their anger and frustration. Hatred compels us so that we want anyone on the other side of the aisle blacklisted, or in her words, shunned from the community, publicly shamed, driven, from the people. We want them exposed and humiliated until they are so bludgeoned by their own subhumanity that they have no choice to, but to recant their political preferences and accept ours instead. And then and only then will we consider their entry into our good graces according to our superior wisdom. The whole thing is very religious, a godless satire of church discipline. But whereas church discipline is about accountability and repentance and saving someone from death, and it's carried out with grief and sorrow and reluctance, this is about hatred and humiliation and scorn. We want a world purged of the other side. We want them shamed into like-mindedness or else silenced. Now, of course... This unapologetically hateful rhetoric is ironically ferried in on the high horse of good versus evil. Why the public shaming? Because the other side is so evil. So they must be dominated or else destroyed. But the thing is, the other side may very well be evil. But the problem is that this ostensibly progressive good versus evil narrative gets itself into all sorts of tangles. The influencer I've quoted, for example, cites inherent white supremacy as one of the primary justifications for her call to shun her political adversaries. It's not like I don't get it. We live in this surreal period of time during which the leader of the free world often wields racist speech like a plaything or quotes segregationists, retweets old Floridian men shouting white power. And the satanic evil of racism is rightfully appalling... And in our outrage, it feels easy or even justifiable to simply categorize everyone in a political camp as, say, a white supremacist and to thus condemn them. But a June article in the New York Times reported, and I quote, Since taking office, President Trump has lost support among most major demographic groups, women and men, old and younger voters, college graduates, non-graduates. But there are at least two big exceptions, black and Latino voters. Trump will lose both groups badly in November, polls show, but his support among them has not slipped. If anything, it may have risen slightly. Close to 10% of black voters and roughly 30% of Latinos back Trump. Now, as I read this woman's string of outrage tweets, I couldn't help but imagine this rich white woman Approach a group of black men and women in Trump t-shirts and saying to them, I have a deep desire to withhold my community and creations from you. I want to shun you from my community. I want you to be shunned from all events hosted by decent people. You cannot be a decent human being. I thought this same thing many times in 2020 before I withdrew entirely from my already scant social media presence, when I would witness affluent white millennials uniformly condemn their political opponents with unthinking blanket statements, demonizing strangers behind the cowardly mask of a smartphone. And many claim to do so in the name of justice for black and brown people, just as long as those black and brown people agree with their politics, of course. When the political stakes are so high That you cannot bear to live in a world of complicated political diversity, that unbearable world becomes a scary place. In September, Time Magazine ran an article documenting the rise of a science fiction conspiracy theory among the far right. The journalist spoke with a husband and wife in Wisconsin who have already planned their family's response to the dire possibility of Trump's defeat in the 2020 election. I think if Biden wins, the world is over, basically, said a man named Arthur. I would honestly try to leave the country, and if that wasn't an option, I would probably take my children, sit in the garage, turn my car on, and it would be over. Arthur and his wife had become avid followers of QAnon, a popular conspiracy theory that I believe is more appropriately described as a cult, in 2020, QAnon became a household name, despite the fact that its adherents believe the president is a messiah figure engaged in an apocalyptic battle against a clandestine league of cannibal, pedophile Democrats that they call the deep state cabal. Making 2020 the year many people learned the word cabal. The QAnon conundrum is, I think, among the greatest examples of the devil's strategic genius. By exploiting the anger and hatred of a political demographic, Satan leads them astray with an easily refutable lie promising the destruction of their political opponents who have become in their minds actual devil-worshipping murderers. So they scour online forums and social media accounts for the truth rather than the scriptures of the Spirit of God. And in their fictional quest against fictional trafficking rings, they have severely defamed and delegitimized actual humanitarian efforts to end the abuse of children. The genius of Satan, deceiving with such cleverness that he he convinced an angry mob to serve him by convincing them they were bringing him down. The effort to demolish a fictional satanic cult became an actual satanic cult. How could the devil possibly accomplish something so heinous and so absurd that it seems stranger than fiction? When people hate their political enemies, anything is possible. Those who vote the wrong way become villains or monsters, all of them either Nazis or child trafficking cannibals. And in the political nightmarescape of 2020, these are actual examples of what people believe and say of their political opponents. Now, most of us in this room, or a lot of us, I venture I guess, do not quite fall into either extreme. But this is our culture, and it acts as a black hole on either side whose horrible gravitational pull exploits what's inside you and pulls you more in whichever direction you lean. But Jesus also lived in a world of political division and hatred and violence. And in that world, Jesus formed for himself a group To advance his cause in the world, let's read a story about who he picks. Look down at Mark chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew. Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's a list of names, I know. Some of these characters are more well-known than others based on what the four first-century biographies of Jesus offer in the way of details. But two names in particular sit strangely on this list. Matthew, who we know from the gospel story, was a tax collector. And one of the Simons, that is, differentiated from the other as a zealot. Now, tax collectors were far right in the Jewish political mind of the ancient world. They worked for Rome. They worked for the oppressor. Zealots, on the other hand, were as far left as it got. Historical records indicate that zealots loathed tax collectors even more than they loathed Romans, the pagans, the oppressors. Because tax collectors not only supported the oppressor, they made a living by exploiting their own people for the sake of the oppressor. Zealots were known for violent revolt, even for assassinating tax collectors. This would be like Jesus inviting a MAGA hat-wearing Trump activist with the flags on the pickup truck and everything to come follow him alongside an outspoken Antifa-sympathizing Portland protester. How utterly incredible it is in context then that both Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot were both drawn to this Jesus and that they both answered his call to follow alongside one another. Matthew would have learned under his master a way of life that would render his political worldview untenable. The ways of radical generosity, for example, or concern for the poor, that it's better to give things away than to take them for yourself. And Simon would have also learned a new way of life that would cost him the old one, enemy love, nonviolence, forgiveness. Of this bizarre choice of disciples, theologian Greg Boyd writes this We never find a word in the Gospels about their different political opinions. Indeed, we never read a word about what Jesus thought about their radically different kingdom of the world views. What this silence suggests is that in following Jesus, Matthew and Simon had something in common that dwarfed their individual political differences in significance, as extreme as these differences were. The silence points to the all-important distinctness of the kingdom of God from every version of the kingdom of the world. While Jesus never sided with any of the limited and divisive kingdom of the world options routinely set before him, the church today, by and large, swallows them hook, line, and sinker. What was it that enabled Jesus and his followers to exist In a politically divided world and not only coexist but collaborate with their worst enemies without shaming and shunning and hating them now stay with me and turn to the right in your bibles to ephesians chapter six ephesians chapter six paul master apprentice of jesus wrote a letter to a church in a city called ephesus in the first century and a lot of the trademark Paul stuff is here. It's about the rescuing work of Jesus, reconciling Jews and Gentiles into one big family of God. There's the uniqueness of our God-given roles and the new humanity. But near the end of the letter, Paul acknowledges a very real threat to the people of God, something he refers to as our struggle. Look down at Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10. Paul writes... Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Four, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In Paul's theology, Those who follow Jesus are engaged in a battle, but not a battle against other people. Paul draws a distinction between human conflict and our conflict with spiritual forces of darkness, which is weird because Paul wrote in a time and place with very real human enemies of the church. In fact, Paul wrote this letter from prison, having been locked up by those who oppose the gospel. Isn't our struggle sort of against them too, at least a little bit? And yet he writes... Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. How can that possibly be so? I'll turn to the left just a couple of pages to Ephesians chapter 2. He's actually explained it in the beginning. Ephesians 2, look down beginning with the first verse. Paul writes, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, another name for this Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead, In our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. For Paul, human beings have a will, they have freedom and autonomy, and they are responsible for their actions, but ultimately, evil itself originates elsewhere from the spiritual forces of darkness at work in the world. The Bible calls them demons or gods with a lowercase g led by an entity called the devil or the Satan. And we moved through this in detail during our series fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. If you want a refresher, you can go back and revisit that series on the website or the podcast. The idea is that the spiritual forces of darkness have corrupted God's good world. And when we participate in and advance evil, we do so according to the will of the evil one. Paul says that this spirit of evil is, quote, at work in those who are disobedient. And lest any of his readers become prideful, he reminds them the same was true of everyone. And the only reason it isn't true for some of us anymore is because of the great love and mercy of God. So fighting with people is an attempt to manage symptoms of evil without treating the source of evil. And the methods by which we engage in spiritual warfare are predictably counterintuitive. It's not via political activism or online shaming, but by engaging in the practices and lifestyle of Jesus to realize the gospel and action in the world around you. If this is true, then it becomes easier to understand how Jesus could invite a far-right tax collector, and a far-left zealot into his close personal community. It wasn't that either of them were engaged in lifestyles that were okay to Jesus. Cheating the poor is not okay to Jesus. Murdering political enemies is not okay to Jesus. But Jesus recognized in them both a great equalizer. All of us are broken. All of us have been misled, duped by spiritual forces of deception. So Jesus creates a way of life for his apprentices that not only forbids hating your enemies, it explicitly forbids walling yourself off from them. In his manifesto on kingdom living, Jesus himself taught, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect or mature or complete, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. On this teaching of Jesus, Glenn Stassen, an ethicist from Fuller Seminary, writes this, Loving only those who love you is the in-group selfishness of clickishness, cronyism, nepotism, racism, and nationalism. If we love those who on- only those who love us, we see only an in-group perspective and become close-minded to how others see things, As a result, we cannot understand our enemies' perspectives enough to deal with them effectively. We are less effective, less powerful, because we do not sufficiently understand enemies who wish us harm and so cannot do what is effective in persuading them to do what we think is right. We grow frustrated and blame them all the more. We transfer our ineffectiveness to other people whom we do not understand. This is the powerlessness of a culture of blame. Henry Nouwen summarizes the idea thusly. He wrote, That is our vocation to convert the enemy into a guest and to create the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. On Tuesday evening, I gathered with my Van City community and I confessed to the group during our time of discussion and practice. sense of uh, judgmental cynicism in recent months. It's a complex hypocrisy on my part. A theology of politics and government became very important to me about a decade ago, raised in the deep south in a hyper-conservative, faux-Christian culture. I was sincerely pained by the damage done to the church and the shame brought on the gospel when the church was bedded by the state, so to speak. And to highlight The crucial distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world became very important to me personally and I have been so discouraged over the last few years to watch that pendulum swing I watched my parents generation lured in by the right to demonize the left convinced that the kingdom would advance when we dominate our enemies impose our morality on non-Christians legislate their behavior that our political that our people in political power was our only hope, that what matters most is a vote, that without it society would collapse from inevitable moral decay. And then years passed, and the millennial generation took up the political idolatry of their baby boomer elders, picking up where they left off. Lured in by the left to demonize the right on a quest to dominate their enemies, to silence and shun and shame them, The idea that their people and political power is the only hope that what matters most is a vote, that without it, society will collapse from its inevitable moral decay. And in the satanic fireworks of political hysteria, we forget the kingdom and we forget the king. We were called to walk in the ways of a God who would rather die for his enemies than destroy them. Who blesses the righteous and the unrighteous? Only our God. But us, a bumper sticker is enough to conjure our hatred. Jesus prayed forgiveness over the people executing him, but a red hat or a hashtag is more than we can tolerate. I thought a lot this week about Jesus' appointment of Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, and I sincerely wondered if Jesus called you and he called the archetype of your most hated political enemy, would you come alongside and follow him? Because he has called you alongside your worst political enemies. He already has. Not an if. Are you willing to behold the person or people who embody the political ideals you most detest, whether for you it's a racist right-wing MAGA hat-wearing Republican or for you it's a far-left Antifa-sympathizing yuppie social justice warrior? Are you willing to behold that person and to obey Jesus' command to love them and to bless them and to pray for them? Do you pray for them do you pray for your enemies when was the last time you prayed blessing over the people that most offend you it's not exactly an obscure teaching of jesus it's right there in his manifesto on what it means to be a disciple in the sermon on the mount and these aren't exactly low stakes before we end hang in there and do me one more favor turn one more time to the right in your bibles to a tiny letter called first john it's easy to miss, so feel free to consult the table of contents. First John, let's read from chapter one when you're there. I want you guys to see this for yourself. First John chapter one, look down at verse nine. These are the stakes. First John one, verse nine. Anyone who claims to be in the light, but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. And there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. But there's more. Turn just a page or two to chapter 3. 1 John 3. And then look down at verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Listen to this, verse 15. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. God, help us. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. As disciples of Jesus, we are often made to walk a tightrope, recognizing evil, hating evil, yet loving those who do evil. When we see opposition to the gospel, There is a good and God-given dimension of our personhood that experiences a kind of righteous indignation. The gospel of Jesus, we believe, is truth and freedom for all people. And when forces come against the good of others, we don't like it. But if we do not allow the Spirit of God to tamper that indignation with humility and compassion, then the Satan will deform it so that it becomes hate have we seen as we've seen over the last few years the kingdom of the world operates on fundamentally different principles than the kingdom of God in the bible the empire which is where we live make no mistake about it the empire is always the bad guy loving our enemies does not mean turning a blind eye to evil that when we behold injustice and oppression and violence we should overlook it in the name of enemy love There persists in evangelicalism this strange myth that we have no way whatsoever to determine whether or not a person follows Jesus. I'm sure you've heard, heard the popular phrase, only God knows their heart. This myth assumes that one's outward and inward lives can somehow be entirely different. But Jesus taught the exact opposite. Jesus taught explicitly that we will be able to determine true and false disciples by simply examining a person's life. This test of fruit is easily applied to those in power and to their followers to look for perfection of course is a fool's errand but we ask does this person's life reflect the lifestyle and teachings of jesus is this person's life marked by self-sacrificial love do they walk in the ways of gentleness and humility when they sin do they repent crying out to god and to others for forgiveness Do they demonstrate radical generosity? Do they uphold a priority concern for the oppressed and the marginalized and the poor? Do they glorify purity in their lives, refusing to objectify other people made in the image of God? Are they nonviolent? Do they love and bless their enemies? Are they gracious and kind when others are cruel and unkind? For many of us, The answer is probably something like, though I often fail, I am learning to grow in these things, and as I grow, my life reveals more and more of the fruit of my faithfulness to Jesus. But if the answer is absolutely not, from the top to the bottom of the list, then that person is not a disciple of Jesus. But when we look out on those in power and on their rabid disciples, we recognize evil, And we stand against it when we see it. But not by hating and dehumanizing those who do evil. Why? Because when we behold those in power who are unapologetically enemies of God, remember this. So were you. So was I. And God wore us down with his kindness and his relentless patience and his unfailing love. God did not make us his friends by screaming at us or with snarky, passive-aggressive Instagram stories or by shunning us or shaming us or by writing all of us off, blocking us, though we deserved it. And now this good and gracious Father who transformed you from an enemy to a friend is asking you, commanding you, to go and do likewise in this tightrope walk of opposing evil but loving evildoers, you will be politically homeless, an outsider, an alien, because the kingdom vision won't fit into any political party or any political system. Would you rather belong to a political side in order to differentiate yourself from the people who so repulse you, or would you rather belong to the kingdom of God a kingdom that belongs to repulsive people of all kinds. Because when we were tax collectors and zealots, Jesus welcomed us as friends and showed us a better way. Now, though we will be politically homeless, we will belong to the kingdom and we will belong to the king. Jesus, Teach us to extend your scandalous love beyond the lines we draw and the walls we build from our own anger and hatred, that we may turn our enemies into friends as God did for us. Amen. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Vancity financially at vancitychurch/give.